0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, making real ingredients for real athletes looking to step up their nutrition. Today, it's red bulgur, a Middle Eastern cereal made from several different species of wheat that's cracked and parboiled, so it doesn't need to be cooked. Just soak it in water, and it's ready to go. Once you've done that, you can add it to salads, make a bulgur pilaf, add it to meatballs, or make bulgur burgers, and say that quickly over and over to impress your friends with your enunciation. You can also replace rice with bulgur in a lot of recipes to increase the protein and fiber content of your meal. Or mix it in with oatmeal to add a nutty flavor and nutritional punch to your breakfast. Basically, if you're looking for a meal plan that packs maximum nutrition into minimum calories, and that's pretty much the definition of a high-performance diet, bulgur is a good place to start. Head over to Bob'sRedMill.com/outside and enter for a chance to win some fun Bob's Red Mill goodies, a subscription to Outside, a book from our collection, and a brand new backpack. One winner will be selected at random each month. That's Bob'sRedMill.com/outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX. This is the Outside Podcast.
1: It was just over a year ago that the world started going nuts over the documentary Free Solo. The film was released in late September, and by Christmas, it was the movie that everyone had been telling their friends they had to see. Well, unless they're afraid of heights.
2: People who know a little bit about climbing, they're like, oh, he's totally safe. And then people who really know exactly what he's doing
1: are freaked out. Free Solo chronicled Alex Honnold's quest to climb the 3,000-foot sheer face of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. It also captured Honnold's emotional growth as he fell in love, which made his incredibly dangerous goal a lot more complicated. The film and the climb couldn't have gone any better.
0: And the Oscar goes to Free Solo.
1: (laughs) Among the unique factors that made the movie so special was the directing team. Elizabeth Chai Vasarelli and Jimmy Chin, a married couple, and two individuals with remarkable backgrounds that made them the perfect duo to tell Alex Honnold's story. Today, we're gonna to share their story, how they met, and the work and the life that they've created together. The story begins in 2003, when Chai, as her friends know her, is 24 years old. She had grown up in Manhattan, and both their parents were immigrants. Her father was a professor, her mother worked with big nonprofits. Chai went to college at Princeton, where she studied film. And then she went out into the real world and made her first documentary, A Normal Life, about seven college age friends living in Kosovo during the very bloody Bosnian conflict.
3: In war, you don't get to see anything that makes you happy. Everything you see is just sad and it's war.
1: Chai and her co-director submitted the film to the Tribeca Film Festival, where it won the prize for Best Documentary. That got her noticed by major Hollywood figures, including the legendary director Mike Nichols. She decided to spend most of the next decade working on documentary films about the African nation of Senegal. The first one was I Bring What I Love, which followed the Senegalese singer Yusin Ndor as he released a Grammy-winning album that presented Islam as a peaceful and tolerant religion. In 2008, it premiered at the Telluride and Toronto Film Festivals. Next came Tuba, a film that chronicled the annual pilgrimage of more than a million Senegalese Sufi Muslims. Meanwhile, as Chai was building her career, growing up, out there in the world, there was this guy named Jimmy. He was also the son of immigrants, two librarians who had settled in Minnesota. Jimmy went to college at Carleton, and after graduating, he became a dirtbag climber living out of a beat-up car, and pretty much climbing all the time. He was very happy. And then one morning in 1999, Jimmy woke up at the top of El Capitan in Yosemite. Rhea camped out with his climbing partner, Brady Robinson. He noticed a beautiful rising light, so he grabbed Brady's camera, and he took a photo of his friend, who was still sleeping. Brady then sold the photo to the outdoor gear brand Mountain Hardware for $500, and graciously gave the cash to Jimmy. He used the money to buy his own camera. And so began the career of the world's preeminent adventure photographer. Jimmy took trips all over the world, and he started selling more photos. He got noticed by major figures in the climbing community, like the American alpinist Conrad Anker. In 2006, Jimmy was part of the first expedition to ski from the summit of Mount Everest. By 2011, Jimmy was a big deal. He was on the cover of Outside Magazine, and he also shot his first cover for National Geographic. And then came a major turning point in this story, when Jimmy and Chai meet for the first time. It was 2012 at an event near Lake Tahoe, put on by a group called Summit, which was building a community of leaders from across industries. Earlier this year at a Summit event in downtown Los Angeles, Jimmy and Chai had told me what happened next. And as it happened, Jimmy was about to give a talk about two climbs he'd done on a mountain named Meru. In India's Garhwal Himalaya, 21,000 foot peak, and out in the lobby outside the room, well, let me bring them out to tell their own story themselves. Please welcome Elizabeth Chai Vasarelli and Jimmy Chin. Okay, so, um, do you, Jimmy, do you remember that? Like, moment? I mean, do you remember how maybe you, you pitched the talk you're about to give and, and how that went over? Uh, like the best moment of your life. <laughs>
2: This is a cautionary tale. No, just kidding. Um, I was a, about to give a talk about. Well, she has a very different <laughs> perspective on it, but I'll tell mine right now. Uh, I was about to give a talk. I'd just come back from my first attempt on at Meru, where was it? No, 2012. No. Oh, okay, Second. So, yeah. I'd just gotten back from my second attempt. <laughs> You know my history better than me, but... I've been studying it for yes. a little while. Uh, second attempt at Meru, and I was giving a, sh- a slideshow. I still remember it because I had just met Beretta and um, Jose Gonzalez. And I was like, ah, oh, because we listened to his music on the climb. And they both came to the talk. But anyways, I was outside. It was 10 minutes before the talk. And I saw someone standing outside, and I was kind of just standing outside. So I started, I approached Chai and started making some small talk. And, you know, because the entrance of the talk was right there, I said, oh, I'm giving a talk right here uh, in like 10 minutes if you want to go. And uh, she said, no. (laughs) (laughs) No. I should have right. known then, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but but, but then, she
1: came right. But I mean, then you, she came she to the came. talk. So yes. here's what that I, like, I want to remember, like, <laughs> what you remember of that talk, like the, the story that was there, or or anything that really stood out from what you heard or saw. Honestly. Uh, I think that's what you do. Yes. I have to say,
4: the photograph that Jimmy shows of him as a really fat baby <laughs> is like, like, it was amazing. And then of Jimmy playing the violin when he's about four, and you know, then he went on to tell this incredible story of how he he found this life of adventure. But those images of the you know Chinese immigrant experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea of, like you know, to kind of tiger parents who want the most for you, you know, really moved me because it was where I come from, too. Right. So it was this very unexpected um, kind of communion. Um, and also, of course, like you've all seen Jimmy's photography. He brings like this graciousness and humility to how we look at the outside outdoor world um, as well as a breath that kind of like elevates it. But what happened was he was also telling this story about Meru, which was, you know, his first attempt was a spectacular failure. They were 300 meters from the top, and they understood that if they kept on going, they would die. So they turned around. And this idea of being that close to achieving your dream um, um, was amazing to me. And I was at Summit with one of my best friends from uh, my high school who's now a professor at Harvard um, in vision and justice. Her name's Sarah Lewis. And she was writing a book about failure called The Rise. And I was like, listen, Sarah, you've got to meet this guy. He's got the biggest failure.
2: Right. Um, she loves but, saying that.
4: No, but this was summit. <laughs> this was like this was summit in like its heyday, bro days. Where like Jimmy would be hanging out, and we'd be like, "Hey, bro!" And Sarah and I would like start snickering. Like we're two girls from Manhattan uh, who couldn't be further away from this world. Um, but we had a really nice time that weekend.
1: Yeah. So, what what I wonder is how we get to this next point, which is, I, I like a few months later you end up sending her an assembly of your footage from Maru. And, and here's the thing about that, because to me, that's, that's kind of a surprise. I mean, you had a nice weekend together. You know, there was clearly some connection. But in that movie, you have this moment where you say, I never climb or go on expeditions with people I don't trust and know. And then you have this very personal story, and you, like, send it to this person. And at that point... I don't think you know that well. So, like, what made you think, like, this is a good idea. I'll share my stuff and expose myself this way with my work to get her take. Like, what what
2: brought that out of you? I mean, a couple things. I think uh, within probably five minutes, well, we met after the talk uh, with her friend Sarah Lewis, Mm -hmm. which I also thought was kind of funny because every they were constantly, like, sizing me up, you know, and, like, (laughs) in every question that they asked me, like, it was always, like, where is this guy? Can he, you know? Um, But it was pretty apparent early on that she's highly, highly intelligent, and uh, I was in the middle of cutting the film, and, you know, there were a lot of questions, and I knew that, you know, I'd done a lot of, you know shooting but not feature length right. documentary which is a complete another animal in itself so and i knew what her credentials were and i knew that you know she would also have a different eye on the on the story someone outside of the industry and so i sent her and i asked her if she would look at it and Uh, I sent it to her, and then I didn't hear back from her for three, was it three months? Yeah. Um, So I just assumed, yeah, whatever, she just totally blew me off, that's fine. But she kind of blew me off when I asked her to come see my talk, and then she actually came to the talk, (laughs) so maybe there was some hope, and then, uh, but she was actually, she was in Senegal filming... Right, Incorruptible. Incorruptible, Mm -hmm. And then uh, I remember her giving me a call, and (laughs) if you get to know Chai, she's very direct. There was no small talk. She just like I picked up the phone. She said, "This is Chai. What are you doing with the film?" That was it. And I was like, "I don't know what I'm doing with the film." And she eventually actually sent like fairly uh, insightful notes. Mm-hmm. not exhaustive like very to the point and um and I thought they were e- extremely helpful yeah
1: when, when you saw the footage i mean it you what what was your first reaction when you saw what jimmy had sent you and again yes you should be honest
4: <laughs> i mean meru is astonishing yeah. i mean i had never seen anything like it it was you know, kind of enabled by the um, DSLR revolution where you could be in these extreme circumstances and filming yourself. It's, like, one of the most intimate... um, It's a very, very intimate story. At the same time, like, the story itself is Shakespearean. I mean, it just... When, you know, when you least expect it, the worst thing happens, and they persevere and come through it. So it was it was just the material was absolutely amazing and i'd never seen anything like it i had never seen you know they were like i mean 19,000 feet like shooting themselves like filming themselves um, and it was just clear it had to be made into a film like yeah. it it had all the material but it was assembled not in a way necessarily that best kind of expressed its strengths
1: mm-hmm. but I, I you know and you guys obviously started working together on it but you're used to this. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, totally. he, seems, he seems fine. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: The footage was astonishing.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, but, but I, I still find it somewhat surprising that you chose to eventually invest yourself in this project. I mean, you've been making films about these really difficult subjects and, you know, the sort of, for lack of a better word, the sort of the big important topics. I mean, it's like religion and war. And this is a story about climbing. And so I want to understand, like... What pulled you towards that? I mean, great footage; it's all there. But you know, okay, <laughs> right? I just, honestly, uh, wow, all the way through. No, uh, no but it,
4: no, but really, um, I mean, I, I invested in Jimmy. Yeah. Like I was falling in love with this man. And Meru also tells, you know, this this kind of wonderful story about Jimmy and his sister, where his his sister, his older sister, um, was married and living at yeah in New Haven, and she got a divorce, and she had two small kids, and when she called Jimmy. His response was just move in with me. I mean, like, there were so many different reasons to fall in love with Jimmy from watching that footage, and as I got to know him more, I, you know, I was falling in love with Jimmy, and so it really became more about like filmmaking storytelling is like a muscle I have. It's a craft I've refined over X amount. You know, I've made I don't know eight year f- eight films by now, and. But the idea of being able to put myself in the service of helping the man I love best tell his personal story was incredibly moving to me, you mm-hmm. know, and but, yeah.
1: But I mean, co-creating anything is complicated, mm-hmm. you know, like it is, it is hard for people to, you know, there's negotiation involved, there's, there's compromise involved, there's putting two people's visions in. For a lot of people, it's difficult. What you're describing makes it sound beautiful, but it. it it complicates it a, a little bit, no? Or is it, is it all good to be in a relationship with someone that you're creating a very complicated project with that also happens to be about them in a in a big way? That's a hard um, question.
4: But, it, but it's funny. Like, I think part of our magic is that it actually isn't that complicated, <laughs> the creative part. I feel like the business of being married is hard. Right. You know, the business of parenting is hard. But the creativity part, like, it, it's that... I think that I could speak to, for both of us that we fundamentally trust each other, mm-hmm. and you know what was the hardest part about Meru was their stuff that Jimmy didn't understand. Like we had this whole process of him understanding what we, myself, and our editor found interesting. You know, and you know, to this day, there are things that only came out much later that I'm still like regretting. That why didn't anyone tell me this stuff? You know, <laughs> um, because it's just like a different language that we spoke. Right. And I think that's what happened with this. You know, with both Marrow and Free Solo, is that we were looking at it at, through a different lens, mm-hmm. like a more human, more universal lens. And so, at,
1: at the same time, though, you, I would think one of the things, and you spoke to this briefly when you said what you liked about his talk. Is you did come to this with certain shared backgrounds. Mm -hmm. You know, immigrant parents, some Asian American heritage, your your parents, as I understand it, you know, the Tiger parents really Mm. pushed you. Mm -hmm. Did that immediately facilitate an ability to work together and, you know, have a process that that fit?
4: I don't know, necessarily working together. It just made it very clear we had shared fundamental values, shared. I mean, Jimmy can handle my mother better than I can. He's like a pro at old Chinese ladies. My dad is Caucasian and could learn something from Jimmy. Um, So it was just, like, it was a seamless thing, and I'd never dated somebody who was Asian, yeah. I think
2: the other part that was clear very early on was just, you know, Chai's expectations of herself and the work that she produced and directed, uh, like, the level of excellence that she expected, and that was, like, immediately apparent. uh, And when you know... That the person you're working with has that, not just that expectation, but has the capacity to perform at that level and work at that level. You know, there is an immediate trust in terms of, you know, our our working relationship and making the film. But, you know, the the by far the biggest challenge for me with that film is, and you know, other filmmakers. I'm sure we will agree, is that when you're too close to a film, when you're in the film and you've lived the film and you have lived through, you know, what's happened with the friends that you're in the film with, it's really hard to be objective about it. It's really hard to understand what narrative points are worth telling because, you know, it's all of it kind of blends together just as your personal experience. And so there was, you know, like a specific point that Chai is referencing when she says, why didn't someone tell me this earlier, was that, uh, I guess I should also say, you also live in the culture and the ethos of your experience, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, late in the edit on Meru, I told Chai, she was like, why did you end up, climbing to the top first when this was like conrad's climb like why didn't he go to the top and i've I was always like,
1: wanted to ask that actually <laughs> yeah
2: and i was like oh it's just a thing you know conrad knew that you know that he in you know in a way he was passing the torch to me and kind of giving me the onus the you know the responsibility of taking us to the summit which is you know, double-edged sword, you, you do get to summit first and you do get the summit pitch, but um, you are also carrying, like, the weight of getting to that because it was a not straightforward right. pitch. Either. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and Chai was like, are you kidding me? You're telling me this at the ninth hour of the edit? Like, that is, like, a very critical idea within, like, the entire kind of ethos of, you know, this climb and your climbing community—that someone would give up the summit pitch because they were handing over the torch—it's like a very significant narrative point. Um, and I was like, "Yeah, but that's just the way it is in climbing, and that's just who Conrad is, you know. It's not that big of a deal." And and I remember actually thinking, "It's not that big of a deal. Like, let's not." Mess around, and you know it causes us to have to edit longer, and and then you put it in the film, and then it of course makes total sense. Where you're like, wow, that's kind of a big deal. Um, <laughs> but you know, like when you live in that space, yeah. and your and your kind of expectation of your partner and your mentor, you know, I mean, that's totally who Conrad is. Like mm-hmm. he is, he has that mindset of, you know. Mentorship, yeah, and that was obviously a very critical idea that we explore in the film, mm-hmm. is mentorship. And
1: obviously, you know, look, the film was a great success. The collaboration worked. You had the audience award at Sundance, shortlisted for the Oscars. I think it was the highest grossing documentary that year. So we've been talking about it so much, we're gonna watch a clip from Maru. So enjoy for a moment here.
3: The shark's fin in Maru Central. This climb has seen more attempts and more failures than any route in the Himalaya. <laughs> wow! It's the headwaters of the Ganges River, one of the most sacred rivers on earth. It's the center of the universe. It's this weird nexus that sort of is the point where heaven and earth and hell all come together. The thing that gives it a name, the shark's fan, is this 1,500-foot blade of this beautiful, flawless granite, way up high, you know, 20,000 feet. This is the test of the, the master climber. You know, it's been tried by so many great climbers, I don't know, 20 times. Some of the best climbers in the world have tried and failed on this route. Meru is not just hard, it's hard in this really complicated way you can't just be a good ice climber you can't just be good at altitude you can't just be a good rock climber you got to be able to ice climb mix climb and you got to be able to do big wall climbing at twenty thousand feet it's all that stuff wrapped in one package that's defeated so many good climbers and will probably defeat you and maybe will defeat everybody for all time that to a certain kind of mindset is an irresistible appeal
1: and that, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the ending part of that clip, I think, gets at what um, what was so impressive to me about this film is that it explained better than anything I've ever seen or really read why people like you and people like Conrad and Renan Ozturk was with you chase these dreams that put your lives at incredible risk. And it's something that outside, we've been trying to explain for more than 40 years, and we fail a lot at explaining, because it's really difficult. Uh, but this film captured that. And I just wonder, you know, like, you spoke before about you not understanding the language and maybe that was, is that really just the key to this? That, that you know, you just you know, talked about your end of that, but I wonder from you, going in like not, not really knowing what they're talking about at times in a good way, but it allowed to bring out that piece that climbers themselves maybe would have a challenging part surfacing, challenging time.
4: No, I, I think absolutely having an outs, like a outsider's perspective um, allowed us to ask questions in a certain way that hadn't been asked before. Mm-hmm. At least I hadn't been asked of them before, um, and also brought a patience to the filmmaking, like the, these very long interviews over and over again right. to really try to get to it and you know it's funny now watching that, I'm like, oh, I was clearly evaluating if he's crazy or not crazy, and should I get married to him <laughs> <laughs> like I like, mean because that was the question, like we had this constant um, dialogue in our edit room and between myself and Jimmy about. Can you resist doing this? like why would one do this can't you it's, Is it irresponsible to do this right and you know the question is unresolved. you know that clip says it's it 's irresistible, but i 'm still like bullshit right. you know but that 's the point of it right <laughs> like it 's about that dialogue mm-hmm. and about keeping it alive and vibrant and bringing up both sides of the argument and giving voice, let, letting jenny anchor uh, Jenny Lowe anchor have a voice in this. Um, hearing from the people around them who really love them, and watching them have to struggle with those questions. Right. Um, so it was just like a different way of looking at something. And the material itself, the world that you guys live in, is so, so rich. I mean, these are Shakespearean stories. Mm-hmm. So it was just about someone coming at it who really doesn't know anything and asking some questions. But, right. you know, like the example Jimmy gave, there. I mean, there were others, like, no clue. But it also taught me to really respect every single, like everything has a reason, Mm -hmm. you know, like everything Conrad Anker and Jimmy do, like has meaning and it's just not apparent at first glance to someone from the outside.
1: Yeah. And I would, I would say, you know, the interesting thing is if someone hasn't seen the film and that clip we just watched, the only thing they'd seen, they'd be like, oh, it's a story about climbing, right? It's a mountain. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's so much more than that. It is this penetrating look at friendship Mm -hmm. and obsession. And I think one of the things that stood out with me so much when I watched it is just um, these guys really bringing their emotions to the film and opening up. And these are like, you know, kind of like tough guy climber bros. Um, And so that I just want to go right to this next clip from Maru. And this, this helps us talk about that a little bit more.
4: Climber bros.
1: Sorry. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) Can we roll that next Maru clip?
2: My mom had made me promise fairly early on. She was like, if you're going to make this your life, you need to promise me one thing. You have to promise me that you will not die before me. And when I was on climbs and on expeditions, I would get to a certain point and I would say, okay, how close am I willing to go Potentially break that promise. So, after my mom died, when the climbing started to get into that place, I remember a moment being like, well, I can go for it right now.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> I. I wasn't supposed to be funny, um, I think. I mean, I, you know, the, the there's another moment in that film that, that I, I just, it haunts me, which, or not haunts me, but just it really grabs me, which is, of course, when Conrad Anker really talks about some of the things he's seen in his life, and I'm, uh, we didn't show that clip because I don't want to ruin the film for those who haven't seen it, and if you haven't, go home, see it. Um, but... The getting these guys to do that, getting these guys to talk about that, that I, I want to understand a little bit about how you surface that in people who who don't share that outside their community
4: um, I, it, it was also again about this partnership um, for us, so I thought earlier when Jimmy was talking about what was difficult about the process, I think I thought he was going to mention just how difficult it was for him to. To agree to put himself out there, not because he was scared of being vulnerable, it was because he was he was uncomfortable with the attention. Like right. those of you who know Jimmy well know that, like he's the last person who wants to be on the cover of that magazine or in the movie. Um, and so that was a big dialogue for us about, like, please trust me that this is really important that you do this. And so you had that, and then you had the fact that both Renan and Conrad knew that Jimmy and I were really serious romantically, and that they had to show up. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it was, I mean, it was kind of something they knew, understood that we were, this was for real, and Conrad showed up and just gave it the time and the work that needed to happen. And, you know, that was always the question about the film, is whether Conrad would cry, you know, whether he would go there. Um, And he did, and I just, it was... You know, it was like a seven-hour interview. It so was it was like, yeah, like, like godly.
2: Also, yeah. part of Chai's process, <laughs> because the <laughs> initial pro- like problem was that I was interviewing Conrad, like, and well, I didn't yeah. interview Renan, but um, and we have such a shorthand, and you know, it's hard for me to ask Conrad. So why do you climb when like? him and I both know that we both know why we climb. Um, And so it's really hard to kind of get past that point where, like, I'm trying to do an interview with people that I know very well, that know me very well, and, you know, to kind of give the kind of answers and the insight that you need, you know, I'm like the last person that should probably be doing that interview. So Chai came in and redid all the interviews, went in, and you know I really learned a lot watching how she, you know she approaches interviews I mean it's a it's a long process because in in a way it's like you're breaking down the person to get them to the right place and you set them up in a certain way uh, where she'll do a seven hour interview but she goes in and she knows exactly what she wants there's like three things that she needs and the whole process is to get them to that point to get to those three things that she wants and the delivery she wants from those people um in the you know on those three right. points and so uh it's exhaustive in the way that is you know part of the craft um but that's how you know She got the deliveries that she needed, which were so important. We'll be right back.
0: So earlier we heard about bulgur, the staple grain of the Middle East, which you can add to oatmeal or make into a delicious breakfast bulgur bowl. You just boil a half cup of bulgur and a half cup of millet in two cups of water for 15 to 20 minutes. Then saute some veggies and cook two eggs, however you want. Add sea salt, black pepper, soy sauce, and an avocado, and you've got the most power-packed, densely nutritious breakfast known to the modern world. And it all starts with ancient grains. Find out more at bobsredmill.com, and while you're there, remember to enter to win prizes from outside. That's bobsredmill.com slash outside.
1: So after this film, <clears throat> um start working on Free Solo. And... Uh, you're at a different point in your lives at this point, too, and I, I think that comes up pretty well. I have a picture... Uh, I'm showing the audience here. a photo of Jimmy with his camera uh, and also look his like daughter on his back in a backpack. <laughs> um, but you guys talk about uh, filmmaking as a as That's a family a affair, but I'd, li- I'd like you to sort of just paint a picture of how that really works, like how that plays out on set, because it doesn't... I have three kids. I don't bring them to work. Um... And so, like, how does that? How do you actually survive that?
4: <laughs> it's a work in progress. Um, but as we're talking about that Conrad interview, I guess the thing where my mind began going, I was like, oh, I was six months pregnant during that interview, mm-hmm. and Conrad knew that, like, I was sitting there for seven hours, so he had to sit there for seven <laughs> hours. Like, I was really pregnant um, and kind of like waddling around. Um, it's a work in progress. I, I don't know how people do it. I, you know, It's the great kind of, I don't know, like irony of my life. I don't know that you work so hard to get somewhere professionally and then you have these amazing children and suddenly everything, the value of everything changes. And, you know, Free for Solo, we were lucky that they were young enough that Yosemite is yeah. that very special place that we could all just go,
3: well,
2: right? Uh, but it's, I mean, so we had Marina while we were making... Meru, and then we had James <laughs> two months into production on Free Solo. So we're in Yosemite with like our whole crew, all of like you know, my, like my heavy, gnarly climbing buddy crew, crews. <laughs> and and we have a two and a half year old and a newborn, and we're like just launching into this film and. I don't know anybody that has kids and knows what two and the two and a newborn is like. Um, you know, coming off the wall after a sixteen-hour day and looking at dailies and then like changing diapers simultaneously while you're running a crew up and down El Cap is like—that's <laughs> like the greatest achievement of our, like, <laughs> yeah.
4: That should be the quote of the night. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> I mean,
2: making that movie is hard enough, but yeah, you had a newborn and a two-year-old on location. That's tough.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I love, at least in the, the backstory of this film, that, that I only really recently came to understand is that initially this wasn't supposed to be a movie about Alex climbing El Cap. That initially you were like we could do a character sketch of this guy who's this world-class climber and he lives in a van and he's having trouble dating because he lives in a van and like this will be this really uh, great story. It's like the worst Tinder cell ever, I think. I live in a van. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it it evolved quite a bit from that and, you know, I I think one of the stories I heard that was most interesting is that Alex, the first person he told that to was you, that he was going to climb El Cap. And I, you know, with everything you just said about you and Conrad, there's like the, you know, sound of the record screeching. I'm like, wait, he told you? Um, although I kind of feel like now up here, if you ask me anything, I'd probably tell you what, what you wanted. Um, but what, like, how, how did, like, why did that happen? Do you have any idea? I mean, Alex is a hard person to maybe understand, say the least.
4: Well, we were kind of set up on a date, like, not a real date, but Jimmy knew Alex really well, and, you know, to embark on this type of movie, like, everyone has to kind of suss one out, one right. another out, f- understand if we can go on this journey together. And, I, I mean, I use this analogy, but, like, making a documentary film, especially a cinema verite film, is kind of like getting married. Like, you are agreeing to go down this road that's a little scary, super intimate, for, you know, who, like four years, five years, six years, and it's an experience that's going to change both our lives as filmmakers as well as the subject's life. So Alex came and stayed with us, and... um,
2: (laughs) Don't tell that story. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding.
4: (laughs) Anyway, so we had our one-year-old there, and we were having breakfast, and he... I mean, basically, he said, if you're going to make a film, like there's only one film to make, and that's free soloing El Cap. And I'm like, what's free solo? I'm joking. I'm not. I'm I'm not. I wasn't that dumb. But um, you know, as a filmmaker, that is incredibly dramatic. It's amazing. It's remarkable. Um, So I was like, that sounds amazing. Like, what a great idea. And then I told Jimmy, and Jimmy was like, he said, what? (laughs) And then Jimmy was like, no way. No way. It's too dangerous. No way. And that is kind of like the magic of free solo, because that debate, you know, those ethical questions ended up kind of providing like the moral compass for the film um it allowed and the us yeah. yeah, it allowed us to be able to make it mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, but Alex and I were just feeling each other out, yep. yeah
2: and it's <laughs> just funny because i've known I'd known Alex for you know, 10 years, and I'd climbed with him all over the world, and we all, like his peer group and his friends, we all could see that, you know, the types of solos he was doing were all kind of leading towards El Cap, and intentionally, we never talked about it among our friends, and there was kind of an understanding we didn't talk about it because we didn't even want to, like, put the idea into the ether in case he ever picked it up and wanted to do it because that we were like that scared of him actually ever thinking about doing it and he never talked to us about it uh and so you know obviously i was a little surprised when (laughs) probably the only person he'd ever told was chai and then she told him it was a good idea (laughs) I don't know. And I was like that's a horrible idea. That's like the worst case scenario because I'd already had a lot of misgivings about making a film about Alex because I knew that it, we didn't have enough footage of him free soloing. You know, a lot of us have shot with him free soloing and he's done a lot of incredible free soloing, but like you know, even compiled together it wasn't going to be enough to me. So I knew that we were going to have to shoot him free soloing which has always been an ethical dilemma for me uh, for the obvious reason, like, you never wanna be the responsible for your friend's death. I think that's pretty simple. So, uh, you know, and, and being a professional climber, like, you know, I've, been, I've worked on both sides of the lens, and it's, it's very clear when a camera gets introduced to a situation how it changes the dynamic of whatever you're doing. And particularly when you are doing something where the margins of success or the margins between life and death are very thin. Uh, you don't know what it could be that you know shifts, uh, shifts that margin or causes something to go wrong. So uh, I was extremely aware of that and that's part of the reason why Alex you know, is able to work a lot with me, because he knows that I understand that very well. Uh, But that also meant that the team I put together, you know, most of the the crew, especially the ones on the wall, were, you know, top professional climbers, you know, they had to be able to casually climb El Cap in a day, I mean, that was like the baseline. Um, And they have to be able to, you know, be world-class cinematographers, so, you know. (laughs) I, there's a small pool of people I can choose from, and I mean I know I know all of them or most of them, um, but you know Alex also knew that everybody on the crew was had that sensibility and that sensitivity to that dynamic, and uh, as you see in the film, if you've seen the film, I mean Mikey Schaefer the cinematographer who can't watch what he's filming, um, he, he actually knows the route more intimately than any of us because he's actually freed it um, and climbed it multiple times. Um, and, you know, that's why Alex can trust Mikey right. uh, to be up there with him while he's free soloing. Yeah. But.
1: What I think is interesting, though, is you started the film, you started with this idea of this, you know, looking at this guy's, in the van and his dating life. Um, and then you're making the film and he f- starts falling in love with someone. Um, and it, it uh, <laughs> things kind of come full a away. Um, and, and we're going to show another clip here. And, the, and what I like about this one is this, I think is the most surprising clip I've ever seen in a climbing film. And I'm sorry, no beautiful uh, cinematography of Yosemite. This is going to take place in Home Depot. Um, so can we play that first clip, please? So this quick scene has Alex Honnold and Sonny McCandless shopping for a refrigerator.
0: That one seems very big and very wide. Oh. Whoa, that seems really deep. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's, uh, let's keep looking for the smaller ones. Oh, this is the 400. That's That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's our jam. <laughs> this is actually, like, kind of perfect. <laughs> this is, like, so adequate.
1: We have a fridge. Hmm. Yay. Great success. So there there's other um, scenes with Sonny and, and Alex, and there's some of the most memorable ones in there. And, and it's really interesting because she she becomes a huge part of this story, and really at the emotional center of it. And I can I can remember very well the one scene where it's like days before he's gonna go, and she's like, like kind of challenging him to reconsider this whole project. And it's really tense and un- uncomfortable to watch. And one of the things it gets at is just how you chose to represent her, um, historically, climbing films and literature and magazines have not done a great job of telling women's stories. You mean the world?
4: Yeah. Like everything? <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> very true. But but she... Thousands
4: of years. Sorry, <laughs> It's all true. Sorry, sorry.
1: Um, so, you know, <laughs> but those, you know, I also, I think, you know, I, I brought up that moment where where she's asking him to reconsider this climb, and you know that's it was so powerful. And but I also have to think that if anyone's going to understand that conversation, it's the two of you, mm-hmm. because you know you've probably had it. You know he he still takes some risks. You know and and has taken them. And I don't know you know, how, if if you were able in that moment to think about that, or if it caused you to to think about that, that it sort of mirrors moments out of your own life or not?
4: Um, I think that our relationship and our experiences together definitely made us more open and receptive, allowed us to listen better. Yeah. Um, I do believe that both Jimmy and I, irregardless of whether we were together or both making the film together, I know that Jimmy would have listened the same way. Um, it was really important for us to give space to her point of view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also in a narrative way, like, it was really, like, for people outside of the climbing world, this is the question. Like, this is the essential question. Like, why are you doing this, and will you reconsider? And if you want to love me, this is what I'm asking you to do. And so... You know, suddenly when Sonny arrived... Like, we always wanted to make a character portrait. Like, it was just... A, it was going to be, like, a funny character portrait because he was, like, you know, online dating. And that was funny. It was always going to be funny. Um, but it was still going to be scary because he would have free any... Like, in the film, too. But um, when Sonny arrived, suddenly... There were two mountains to climb. And probably the emotional one was harder for Alex. Mm-hmm. And so... It just... It had that gravitational force, but it was, it was very difficult, mostly you know, just as a bystander, you know, in that scene, in that particular scene, like, I would like to punch Alex, and I also would like to pull Sonny away. Because on one hand, like, he could very easily say, I love you, and that probably could go, you know, it, you know, he could kind of evade, like, a lie to the, que- like, kind of scoot by the question. And to her, I was like, how could you say this to him and, and see doubt in his mind? So... But it was a really important scene because, and like, that's why she's special and that's why it works is because she was self confident enough and emotionally kind of um, aware enough to be able to self advocate with Alex and say, like, I love you for who you are, but you know, I'm going to stand up for myself. And that was, I really admired her because actually, Jimmy and I don't have those. Um, mm-hmm. Those have those conversations, mostly because I trust Jimmy absolutely, which is probably naive, too. You know, it's, a, it's probably how we make our, allow our, you know, our, our relationship to function. Uh, and it's really nice when we work these things out in public.
1: Yeah, sorry about that. Um, um, so, <laughs> so um, well, it, but although though, that kind of gets to the next thing, because I interviewed Alex last year, and we got to talking about this, and one of the ideas that, that came out of that Um, was that the making of this film and then the film getting out in the world was really good for him. Mm -hmm. That having all this attention put on him and then being able to see yourself the way people see you was ultimately therapeutic for him. Mm -hmm. However, I think maybe it had been a little different for you guys than him. So I want to play a clip that helps me answer that uh, question. Can we play the second uh, free solo Mm -hmm. clip?
2: I've always been conflicted about shooting a film about free soloing just because it's so dangerous. It's hard to not imagine your friend, Alex, soloing something that's extremely dangerous and you're making a film about it which might put undue pressure on him to do something and him falling through the frame to his death. And we have to work through that and understand that what we're doing is something that we can live with even in the worst-case scenario.
1: (sighs) So watching that it's it's hard not to imagine I mean it's hard to believe that it was like oh is it you know the way Alex talked about it with me it was like yeah this was great and I learned how I was and it worked out really well um and, and but but you know, you look really stressed out there, yeah. and I just—I don't know if—if if you're able now to say no, th- that was great during too, and it was, or it's like, no, we survived that. It was worth it to make great art, but like, that was brutal.
2: It—it it was certainly brutal uh, because it wasn't just the responsibility of Alex's safety. Uh, you know, we just spent so much time on the wall, and in. Kind of like I've gotten a pretty broad understanding of how accidents happen, what causes them, and you know a lot of it's also is a numbers game. It's the statistics. It's like how much like the volume of time you're in uh, places where you're exposed to high risks. Uh, well, basically the the volume of time you spend in high risk environment environments is something that I think about a lot. And so I was asking my team also to be in high-risk environments a lot. And not just on the wall, like approaching the climbs. Like, you know, because everybody's really good, we're not roped up a lot of the time and we're, we're moving pretty quickly to get in position. We're all carrying 50-pound packs and traveling in fifth-class terrain, soloing ourselves. Um, and so you know, that that was a, a lot of responsibility that not a lot of people probably understand, but like just in Morocco, I mean, the amount of fifth class soloing we did with heavy packs and loose terrain was, you know, three, it was a lot. And so, you know, that burden was one thing, but one, the thing that I learned specifically about that was kind of intuitive, but became much more acute in terms of how I was thinking about it was that the approach in which we thought about making the film was really important because I thought about the outcomes of, you know, different intentions in terms of how you were thinking about the film. And so, that sounds kind of vague, but I guess the point is just that we talked a lot about the fact that the film's needs could never, you know, be prioritized over Alex's needs, and that you know he was a friend and uh, first, and the subject second, and so we always deferred to that intention during the production because basically, if if he fell because we were pushing him because we were really you know putting the film's needs first. It's a very different than if he fell, and you know we were kind of trying to protect his experience and not putting the film's um, needs first. And that was always like this—it's like this really weird fine line, but it's it's very distinct. Um, and so that was something that I talked about a lot with the crew. That was understood. That you know that's how we had to approach the film and. <clears throat> and And the big part was always trying to protect his experience. Like we all know why we climb, and it's for this specific experience. And we wanted to make sure that he had that experience on the day of his free solo. So the greatest success for me, or the greatest kind of, I guess I considered it a success because Alex got to the top. And the first thing he said to me, and i and I mean he he got it, is that he 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 looked at me and said, that's exactly the experience I wanted. And that's when I felt like, okay, we did our job. And it wasn't covering it or like, you know, it was the fact that we gave him the space to do the thing that he loved and he had the experience that he wanted.
4: But just to speak to your, I mean, kind of of elaborate on that was that, you know, there was a moment when the film premiered. So this was a weight that, like, Jimmy and the team, everyone um, carried, was that the risks involved the idea of having to respect Alex and also insulate him from the feelings, right? It's not like you'd be like, Alex, you're stressing me out, man, don't do this. Like, it's not our, it's like a respectful distance, um, emotionally, and so, Which I also think is true of most journalism. I think that just Free Soul is a more extreme case of like the rules of documentary filmmaking, which are that the film's needs should not trump those of your subjects, period. And can you trust yourself to respect your subject no matter what? And we trusted ourselves that should the worst case scenario happen, it's not that we would, like we knew we would respect Alex's story in that. But anyway, so the film premieres at the Telluride Film Festival, it's like some ungodly late hour, it's like a 10 p.m. premiere. Tommy Caldwell, Alex, Rebecca Caldwell, Sonny, Mikey, Jamie, the whole team is in one row. And at the end of the film, I'm like looking down like every one of those burly dudes is sobbing. Right. Because it was traumatic. I mean, it really was like a, vi- yeah. like a totally traumatic experience for everybody involved who believed and believed it was important and believed in Alex and trusted him and trusted ourselves, but like you know, people often ask like free solo too, and it's like a unanimous, absolutely not, never again, no way, Jose. <laughs> you know, like because it was deep, it was hard, and it was deep. And those like it can never be overstated what wow. Jimmy and the High Angle Crew achieved up there. Mm-hmm. Um, like,
1: so that that's a <clears throat> perfect lead up. The way you both said that to. to my next question here, which is, you know, so you, you win an Oscar, like it was incredible, right? Let's, let's give it up for a minute because I mean, it was, and you know there was there's this just you know aura of glory around it, and there were these beautiful posed pictures, uh, you know, I saw out there, um, but then I saw this photo. I'm showing this hysterical shot thought, of Jimmy um, and Chai with their kids is in a hotel. Day room. After, as I it's a bit chaotic it. in this. Um, and just with everything you just said, I just. Are you guys just, like, exhausted? Like, are you just so tired? I mean, I feel like, you know, the question is, like, are you in the mood to take a break, or is it like, we're in a groove, we're creators, actually, we're packing all the kids, and we're heading to Patagonia, we don't know how long we'll be there, and it's going to be awesome, we'll figure it out.
2: Hmm. Mm. We don't like to sit around too much, but... (laughs) (laughs) um, I don't know.
4: I mean... When you make documentary films, you never set out to win an Oscar. Like like documentary filmmaking is like the like the lowest of the low in terms of like the Hollywood, like the film industry, etc. And you normally make them because you don't get paid very much money because you believe in something. So what happened with Free Solo is incredible. Like basically Audiences responded to Alex's story and, and were inspired by this idea that if you work really, really hard, you can achieve your dreams. I mean, he's kind of like the nerd's hero. Like We all feel this, we're all scared of something, and here is a person who was able to move through his fears. Not because he's crazy, but because he worked really hard. So, the fact that, that like it, it lit a fire, and people came out to see it, and like the industry um, enjoyed the film, which I think was because of the craft where Alex brought such craft that everybody involved, Jimmy, the editor, every person on this team, if Alex was able to free solo El Cap, you had to do your absolute best in your role. And, but I think that at the end of the day, it's like we have this incredible platform because of what happened. And Jimmy and I both really believe that, you know, I don't know how much, like Alex's story is about intentional living, it's about you know, are you doing what you really want to do with your life and are we making the films that actually matter? So I think the real impetus for us right now is like at, while we have this attention, while we have this platform, we've got to make work that matters and says something good it's on the right side of history. So, you know, our next film is a film about conservation. It tells the story of Christine Tompkins, Doug Tomp- the late Doug Tompkins, and Yvonne Chenard, um, and it's a big fat love story about conservation, like the original eco warriors who were really close to Jimmy. Um, so it, that's what felt right. It, it didn't feel like a moment to stop, it's felt like you had to, You have to keep on going. But it's hard, I and mean, we love our kids. It's crazy, you know. Yeah, and, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well I think that's about all we have time mm-hmm. for today. I did wanna give you guys a big thank you for coming and sharing your story and maybe getting a little more personal than we expected. <laughs> um, thank you. And just to thank you, um, Thank you for doing what you've done, and and these films are real gifts to those of us who get to enjoy them. So thank, and if you're in the audience, keep in mind, you might meet someone out in that hallway and win an Oscar, (laughs) you never know. So thank you very much, you guys. (laughs) Thank
2: Thank you. you. Thank you. you.
1: That was Elizabeth Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin speaking with me, Michael Roberts, on November 9th, 2019 at Summit LA. Thanks to Summit for the recording. You can learn more about their events and their community at Summit.co. This episode was brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, making real ingredients for real athletes looking to step up their nutrition. Their red bulgur can be added to all kinds of recipes to increase the protein and fiber content in your meal. Learn more at Bobsredmill.com/slash outside. And enter for a chance to win some Bob's goodies, a subscription to outside, a book from our collection and a brand new backpack. We'll be back next week.